2: Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I'm Katrina Blowers. It is Monday, September 6th, the start of a brand new week. And on today's briefing, Dr Nick Coatsworth joins us to dispel once and for all some of those myths about COVID vaccines.
0: I just can't conceive of how you'd actually do it. You know, sticking a microchip into some liquid that you'd then get put into the arm.
2: Dr Nick Coatsworth joins us for part one of our two-part episode debunking all those vaccine conspiracy theories. I'm sure you've heard a few of them yourself. Uh, Before that though, Annika is here with the headlines. Hey
3: Annika, how is your weekend down in lockdown Melbourne? Feels like a bit of a cruel question to ask anybody in (laughs) lockdown. Mine was even worse though because I can't help but go to exposure sites all the time. I only left the house twice last week both times I ended up at an exposure site. So I had to test and isolate until I got a negative test, which I did get, but that meant that I couldn't even go for my daily exercise on oh, Sunday. Um, no. I had to wait at home, but I made up for it Sunday. So not a great weekend down here, but a lot of the country is in the same boat. You've just got to stop living it up at Woolworth, Seneca. <laughs> Coles was one of them. The other one was the office tower I work in. So I don't know what I'm about to do about that. Oh, no. Staying at home. That's the only solution, which, you know, is probably the wisest thing to do. New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian says COVID cases could hit 2,000 this week. In good news, though, 40% of the eligible population in New South Wales is now fully vaccinated. There were 1,485 new cases and three deaths announced yesterday.
2: Yeah, so authorities are predicting that the state's COVID-19 outbreak will peak within the next week.
3: You can't keep going like this.
1: There aren't that many hospital beds and there aren't that many intensive care units. And it's not just the ventilators, it's the staff. The staff are working so hard at the moment. They are really stressed and they are really having to not only look after people with COVID, but other conditions.
2: So that's the Australian Medical Association Vice President, Dr Chris Moy there.
3: Premier Berejiklian said the modelling suggests the state could hit that mark of 2,000 daily cases within the next week. Now, that's also bad news for Victoria, where the Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton, said on the weekend there was every possibility Victoria would follow the New South Wales trajectory.
2: Meanwhile, paramedics say they are struggling to cope with the increase in cases.
0: We've been begging the government for weeks and weeks and weeks, if not months now, that this crisis is coming and we've been hurtling towards this cliff And now it's only really taken what people to just be dying in their homes before we can get to them for them to finally be spurred into action.
2: And that's Brett Simpson from the Australian Paramedics Association of New South Wales talking on the project last night. I guess the good news, uh, you've got to look for some good news here, is that New South Wales is about to hit 7.5 million doses of a vaccine. Some more vaccines, around 450,000 were delivered to Sydney from London by two flights last night.
3: Now, you're in Queensland. That's Mm. a good place to be relatively, although I did hear there are concerns about a nail salon, some cases that could have snuck across the border. What's it like up there at the moment?
2: Yeah, so we were all um, expecting when we heard that there was a a press conference yesterday morning that we would definitely be going back into lockdown. We had a a truckie come across the border go to a pedicure with a four-year-old colleague's daughter. Her mother has also tested positive, so we've got that little cluster of cases there, around 1,000 families isolating in Queensland. So we're all just waiting here, hoping that we uh, continue our freedom for a couple more days at least but I feel as though a lockdown at some point is inevitable in Queensland.
3: Local beaches around Coffs Harbour remain closed after a surfer died after being attacked by a shark at Shelley Beach. So the man, believed to be in his
2: 30s, was bitten on his arm just before 11am yesterday.
0: We got caught out of the water, um, ran down to see what was happening, um, saw a man
3: without an arm, lots of blood and lots of people uh, helping him.
2: Yes, so there were so many surfers there on the beach. That one was a local surfer talking to the ABC. The man was treated by paramedics before the Westpac rescue helicopter arrived, but he died at the scene. Very sad stuff, especially on Father's Day. Four paramilitary guards have been killed in a suicide bomb attack near the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. The bomber targeted frontier constabulary guards in the southwestern
3: city of Quetta yesterday. The attack occurred around 140 kilometres from the border with Afghanistan. A group called tarek i taliban or the TTP, is claiming responsibility. Three of the guards were apparently killed
2: instantly, while a fourth died in hospital. Now, if you're wondering what the TTP is, it is affiliated with the Taliban in Afghanistan and has renewed its campaign against the Pakistan army in the wake of the Taliban's
3: resurgence. And the search for a missing three-year-old in the Hunter Valley will widen today.
0: Obviously, the terrain's very, very difficult. Uh, we're in a rural setting. Uh, there are various levels of elevations. We have been searching some of the dams and waterways, so all of those things are a concern, and um, really, every minute is important, so our priority is to, just to find AJ as quickly as we can.
3: New South Wales Police Superintendent, Tracy Chapman, speaking there. So, Anthony
2: AJ Elfalak, who has non-verbal autism, went missing four days ago. In a bit of an unusual step, I thought, Annika, police actually said that they had some concerns that he could have been abducted. And yesterday, officers seized a white ute from an abandoned house near where AJ disappeared.
3: Yeah, awful stuff there. The search at Putty, northwest of Sydney, continues today. More than 100 volunteers scoured local bushland yesterday.
2: And the family reported seeing a white Toyota Hilux driving down their private road around the time of AJ's disappearance. And the Paralympics have wrapped up in Tokyo overnight with a closing ceremony featuring music, dancing, and of course, always fireworks.
3: After 12 days of competition, Australia has ended up eighth on the medal tally with 80 medals, including 21 gold. Such an amazing result. The Minister
2: for Sport, Richard Colbeck, paid tribute to our Paralympians ahead of the closing ceremony.
0: I don't think anyone could be more proud of the effort that we've seen over the last 12 days from our athletes in uh, in Tokyo during the Paralympics. Some extraordinary performances.
3: He's certainly right there. On the final day of competition yesterday, Madison de Rosario became the first Aussie woman to win a Paralympics marathon gold taking out first place by one second in the women's wheelchair race. I think too, Annika, it was a bit of a controversial
2: decision to go ahead with both the Olympics and the Paralympics and something that a lot of Japanese people felt very nervous about. But now that they've pulled it off, it's been a bit of a morale booster for that country. So nice to see that too.
3: Not just that country, I think too, it was what a lot of people, especially in lockdown needed here. All right, Annika, coming up
2: next, we are about to bust some myths about COVID, including does the COVID vaccine contain a microchip and can it help boost 5G? (laughs) I know that Jan, Tom, Annika me, we've all spoken to Dr Nick Coatsworth before about vaccinations. Some of you might even feel
1: like you're listening to a bit of a broken record. I guess it it matters because 60% of the nation is back in lockdown and vaccinations are the key to our future and our freedom. And the voices of vaccine hesitancy seem to be getting louder and louder, certainly on my WhatsApp groups.
2: Yeah, so in this two-part podcast, we are going to pose all the questions that need answering once and for all. These are questions that not only I had personally, but I've been listening to a lot with um, my family and my friends and even people who I meet out and about during
1: the course of my work. He probably needs a little introduction, but we'll give him one anyway. Dr Nick Coatsworth, he's the former Deputy Chief Medical Officer, and he joins us for some of this really essential myth-busting. We'll also be exploring what next for boosters, for children, and what this pesky new normal is going to look like. Dr Nick
2: Coatsworth, thank you so much for joining us again. You've been so generous with your time.
0: Thanks very much, Katrina. Great to be back.
2: I guess the first question that I've heard again and again and again is, were the COVID-19 vaccines developed too quickly to be safe?
0: Oh, first I'd say I understand it. It does appear to be really quick. But what you've got to remember is that there's been two major coronaviruses in the past 20 years. One was the first one, SARS-1, in the 2000s, and then we had SARS-CoV-2. So there was already a lot of technology in the pipeline developing or developed to put towards these vaccines. And then what actually happened was that there was so much investment from governments, from private organisations, pharmaceutical companies themselves, combined with a very ready pool of people to take the vaccine in the trials. So all the steps that were taken to actually get to the vaccine were exactly the same steps that we would have taken to make any vaccine that we get in our arms when we're kids. It's just that the steps were able to be done so much more quickly because A, we had a head start and B, we were able to invest very, very heavily with a large pool of willing volunteers to to get the jabs. So everything was done, you know, in a much shorter period of time, but with just the, the same thoroughness that any vaccine development would go through.
1: Now, we're going to address some of the things, and I guess I refer to it as, you know, what Dr WhatsApp has been diagnosing and circulating. Do COVID-19 vaccines contain a microchip? or any form of technology tracking. That's some of the misinformation I see getting circulated quite a bit.
0: Yeah, I know. And I think the core of this disinformation is really about people's sense of loss of control, wanting to attach meaning to something that's very difficult to understand. We've never been in a pandemic before. We don't understand the implications for it, but we do know that it causes us to lose control of our lives. And That sort of sense of fear and loss of control can even extend to being afraid of the cure itself, which is a vaccine. With the microchips, I just can't conceive of how you'd actually do it, you know, sticking a microchip into some liquid that you'd then get put into the arm. I wonder if what people are worried about is the fact that some of the technology that's been used to develop these vaccines, the so-called use of mRNA, which is just a protein. It's not a microchip. It's just a protein that exists in our bodies already. Messenger RNA is what it's called. And that stimulates a cell to produce the spike protein of COVID-19. And that's what causes the immune system to have memory and remember the COVID-19. The last thing to say, which is really important, of course, is that with any vaccine, COVID-19 vaccines are no exception the sort of stuff that you're injecting, the um, proteins that you're injecting, they actually disappear. They're cleared by the immune system, but in the process of being cleared, the immune system retains memory. So nothing that you're getting injected with the COVID-19 vaccine actually stays in your body.
1: Mm,
2: That's so fascinating. I've had quite a few people say to me, I've got some underlying health issues like uh, autoimmune diseases, and so I don't want to get the vaccine just yet because I'm really worried that it's going to either trigger that autoimmune disease that I already have or cause one. What would you say to that?
0: Well, it's very common. It's very common, and, and my patients say that to me as well. The most important thing to remember is if you've got an autoimmune disease, you've already got a dysregulated immune system. It's not quite functioning as it should. And oftentimes, you need to be on things to suppress that immune system. Now, if you get COVID-19 and you're on medications to suppress your immune system with an autoimmune disease, then your chance of going to intensive care and becoming very, very unwell is much, much higher than someone without an autoimmune disease. So far from being a reason not to take the vaccine, it's actually one of the major reasons that you should take the vaccine, to give your body whatever extra protection it can to fight COVID-19.
2: It's not going to trigger things, say, like glandular fever or, say, a thyroid condition or Hashimoto's or anything like that?
0: No, no. And the other thing to remember is that we've had trials of tens of thousands of people. We've had real-life experience with now actually hundreds of millions of people. There is so much scrutiny on this by people and scientists who work with the Therapeutic Goods Administration what we call our pharmacovigilance programs where we're seeking reports actively from doctors and patients about what happens to them after a COVID-19 vaccination. And we haven't seen any signal at all that it increases autoimmune disease. Keeping in mind that that pharmacovigilance program is so good that it's detected a complication that only occurs in three in 100,000 people, which is of course the AstraZeneca blood clots. So if Hashimoto's um, thyroiditis or auto immune diseases were happening, we would know about it.
1: And there are some people, even though they form a smaller portion of the medical community, who believe that in addition to vaccinations, that Australia should be considering treatment options, as, I guess, as a two-pronged approach. You get, I guess you treat and you avoid. And at the risk of sounding like Craig Kelly, things like ivermectin showed initial promise. And I know that there's a large study being done in the UK into this. Why aren't we both vaccinating and treating?
0: We are doing both. It's just that we're doing it with drugs that work, not ones that (laughs) don't work. And with respect to Mr. Kelly, he's not alone in the world in looking at ivermectin. And again, these things are anchored in some degree of truth. So ivermectin does actually appear to work or has a plausible mechanism of working within a test tube against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. That's the first stage of drug development. Then you put it into a body and the human body is so complex that different things happen to it than it does in the laboratory. And so it's been proven time and time again that ivermectin has no effect on the disease course of SARS-CoV-2. But by contrast, there are a lot of medications that we have now that do. Dexamethasone, very simple steroids that people get as soon as they have to come into hospital and go onto oxygen, and that reduces the inflammation associated with the disease. And then there's a new drug called citrovimab. That's what we call an, a monoclonal antibody. And just to explain that, you inject an antibody into um, a patient who's not been vaccinated, And it sort of binds to the cells that have SARS-CoV-2 and essentially spotlights them for the immune system to come and clear it up before it can cause too much damage. That's just turned up in the national medical stockpile. And we've, in fact, given our first dose of it here in the ACT.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned that steroid. My sister-in-law, unfortunately, is currently in hospital and she has been administered that steroid. Another thing which is quite close to home, my parents are in their 60s, they currently have COVID and it's obviously a very stressful time for our family and many people around us are now saying things like or asking, do they need to get vaccinated given they would have some sort of immunity given that COVID's in their body?
0: We still think it's important to be vaccinated after having an episode of COVID. And in fact, if you do, there's a couple of things that give you an advantage. Natural immunity is very useful to any sort of condition and is usually a little bit better than vaccine-induced immunity. So if you get SARS-CoV-2, you recover from your episode of COVID, and then you get a vaccine, then you've got a really potent, strong immune system for any future exposures. The other thing, which is not quite proven, but looks like it's emerging, is that people who have symptoms of long COVID, the range is so wide in the studies from sort of one in 100, all the way up to one in 10, and some studies even higher. But people who have those symptoms of fatigue and brain fog, they've been found to get better. After getting a vaccine, so they get COVID, they get long COVID symptoms, then they get a vaccine, and their symptoms suddenly get a bit better, which wow. is really interesting and worthy of worthy That's of future so study. Yeah, good
1: to know. Yeah,
2: it really is. So I'm lucky enough here in Queensland. I've been double dosed. I've had two shots of Pfizer. One of the things I've wondered myself is what happens if the virus now mutates? Does that mean that I am no longer covered? What happens?
0: So the virus mutates when there's lots and lots of cases in the world. So that's why it's so important that we actually get vaccine out there to low and middle income nations so that we can reduce the amount of circulating virus. If the virus mutates in the spike protein, which is the major part of the virus that our immune system recognises, there is a possibility that the current vaccines may not be as effective for those variants. But the good news is that all the variants that are circulating at the moment, we call them variants of concern, including the Delta variant, are fully susceptible to the vaccine and there's been no change in the effectiveness of it.
2: That was Dr Nick Coatesworth dispelling some of the COVID myths you are
1: bound to hear from family and friends. But of course there's more. So join us tomorrow for part two of our chat with Dr Nick and we'll be talking about COVID and children and controversial ivermectin and also what the future looks like. Listener